Before we begin our study in the book of Jonah, I wanted to mention to you that uh, we sometimes get uh, our focus and our attention aimed toward a lot of what's going on in the country, especially in the, in the, in poli in the political arena, and we fail to look at other things that are going on in the world. Uh, of course, the conflicts in the Middle East will not ever uh, just go away. They're, in fact, going to escalate more and more as the day of Christ approaches. But uh, one thing that, uh, that Jesus talked about in his uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and uh, Mark uh, 13 and, and Luke 21 had to do with the condition of the world at the time of, of uh, the, well, uh, the time of the end, uh, before his complete return, <clears throat> and in some cases before his return for his church. But that's just the beginning, as he said in, in Matthew, of sorrows. And one of the things that we don't focus a lot about on, because it's not affecting us directly, is this coronavirus that is uh, spreading in, in the, uh, from, I believe it was in the Wuhan province of China, and now it's spread even to uh, our own land and many other countries for that matter. But uh, it's, it's one of those things that we, we should not turn a blind eye to because, uh, again, these are things that are affecting people in the last days. And uh, Jesus mentions the fact that there would be pestilences on the earth. And these are signs. So it's not only to awaken us of, of, of his return, but of what we need to pray about. We certainly, uh, as, as we'll learn today in, in this one verse of Jonah that we're dealing with tonight, that the Lord truly in this day and age of grace would have people come to him no matter what they're dealing with from a medical or, or physical standpoint. People are facing the reality of, uh, of cancers today and all kinds of uh, diseases and pestilences. They're affecting all of us. And uh, we need to keep our, our, our focus on, on everything that's going on. At times they affect us personally. And that's painful enough but it also affects us as believers in Jesus Christ. What to do in the last days? What to do in the times of his return? Because he said, when these things begin to happen, then look up. So, while we have encouraged you, especially this past weekend, to look up, because your redemption draws near, also look out for others. Look out in prayer for those who are going through some of these battles physically and medically. And most of them in, in, in one way or another going through battles spiritually as well. So before we begin, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask God for wisdom in, in some of these issues. And as we pray for our study tonight. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to your throne of grace uh, it is a privilege that we should never lessen in our lives, but one that we should take full advantage of each and every day. I thank you that, Lord, you've made access to your throne by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the very fact, Lord God, that you tore the veil from top to bottom so that we might enter in confidently and boldly to obtain your mercies and to find your grace for help in time of need. 
One thing that, Lord, we want to ask is that you would give us wisdom and understanding in the things that uh, are taking place, Lord God, in our community, as well as in, in, in our country and in, our, in, in, in this world. We pray, Father, for those going through the suffering of this, this virus that is going around today. We pray, Father, for protection from it, Lord, because I know, Lord, that viruses of this sort could, could easily spread to more than just thousands, maybe even millions of people. If this is certainly one of those plagues, Lord, we do know that you will have your hand upon those that you care for and love, and we know that you have died, Lord. You sent your son to die on behalf of all the world. So we're concerned, Lord, but at the same time, we're also thankful and grateful for what you've done and what you've given to us. So, Father, I just ask for your wisdom and grace as we study your word tonight, that it will affect our hearts in a great way. And Lord, I know that uh, this is just coming to me, uh, uh, but uh, I don't know the family, but there's a, an officer, and, and I believe it's in our police department, that is uh, uh, that has died, and we, uh, we want to uh, pray for their family. We don't know the cir- circumstances, but uh, that's just come to me now. But Lord, at this moment, we pray for them. And uh, ask, Father, for your guidance and wisdom through to the officers that are dealing with this. And uh, give us wisdom and grace and an outpouring of your spirit now to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes technology is good and sometimes it's painful. So... I'm going to shut that off for now. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now, most of us are familiar with Jonah. We tend to look at uh, this biblical prophet as, uh, as one who is known for taking a ride in a maritime vehicle whether it was a fish or a whale, we're going to find out tonight. But uh, Jonah was more than just that. He was truly a prophet of God. But as a prophet of God, he was also very human. And what we learned in the first chapter of, of this letter, or of this prophecy, as it were, really it's an account, it's... it's uh, either biographical or autobiographical, depending on whether he wrote it or not, but it's certainly written about him. And, and Jesus, of course, mentions him, so we know that he's a real person. But what we know about him is that uh, he did not want to do what God called him to do. And there are times when we have to look at Jonah and say, Lord, this is here to remind me of who I am, of who we are. Because many times God is calling us to do something and we tend to take a step back. And not so much to say whether he was calling or not. To say, well, I don't know if it's the Lord or not. We know when it's the Lord. We really do know when it's the Lord. And we know when we don't want to do what he says. It's painful. The consequences. Not because he's after us to hurt us if we don't but because he loves us so much that he would call us. And he would want us to be obedient. Jonah, in this particular chapter of chapter 1, he really heard from God and he told Jonah, go to Nineveh. 
and tell them that if they don't get their act together, they're going to be judged greatly. Tell them to repent. Jonah's heart was revealed. He hated the Ninevites. Lord, just get rid of them. So instead of doing what the Lord said, he ran away. He, he, he wanted to go as far away from Nineveh as possible. In the known world, that would have been Tarshish. But as we've oftentimes said in the last few weeks, you run away from God, you run into God. No matter how far you think you're going, he'll always be there. Why? Because he's omnipresent. You can't get away from him. When he wants you to do something, he's going to come for you. Sometimes it's painful to see how he does it. And again, it's not because he hates you, but but because he loves you. He loves his people and he loves his prophets. Jonah was a faithful prophet. But he almost took a lot of people with him in that boat. And it came down to this, that all those pagans that were on the ship wanted to find out what he had done because they knew that it was Jonah's fault. It was Jonah was the main reason why that ship was in that storm where usually there are no storms. And God brought that storm up to get his attention and to save that crew. Jonah said, throw me overboard. I deserve death for my disobedience and rebellion toward my God. And they did. That brings us to verse 17, where it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And as we are beginning to enter into chapter 2 of Jonah, It is imperative that we not skip over the content of this last verse of chapter 1 carelessly. As I mentioned last time, verse 17 is actually the beginning of chapter 2 in the Jewish Hebrew Scriptures. All that said, the, the reliability of Scripture is on the proverbial chopping block in this one verse. And it is fitting and appropriate for us to Uh, us who are confident believers in the word of God to know what we believe and why we believe it as it pertains to this most controversial statement here in verse 17. If we truly stand upon the reliability and inerrancy of scripture, then we must believe that the Holy Spirit is assuring us indeed that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. We have to believe that. If given to us by the Holy Spirit, in the words of this inspired uh, prophecy, this is a fact that unbelievers, both inside and outside of the church, by the way, I hate to put it that way, but yes, you can be an an unbeliever and in the church. But this is a fact that unbelievers, both inside and outside the church, have viewed with astonishment and even skepticism, uncertainty and disbelief. But before we get into a deeper examination of this verse, let's bring the issue closer to home for all of us. Walking throughout this life, many of us will have what can only be considered as a near-death experience. Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hands because I don't want you to raise your hands. But I think you know, if I ask you right now, if you've had a near-death experience, you know what that is. Whether it's been in a serious accident or a grave illness or even a terminal illness or any number of health-related emergencies. In other cases, some will be robbed or assaulted, while still others will face the danger of combat and war. Whatever the life-threatening crisis may be, our only sure hope is to turn to the Lord and to trust Him and Him alone. 
to trust in our great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that the Lord will do one of three things for all who truly trust and follow Him. Now listen carefully to this. First of all, He will save us either He will save us from imminent danger. Or he will walk with or deliver us through the danger. Or he will carry us above the danger through the experience of death to live eternally in his presence. Now I know that last point is never an easy thing for us in our humanity to hear. But it is a never-present reality in a fallen world. But as long as we are safe and secure in the loving arms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, safe and secure by the salvation we have because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear of death. And bear in mind that we need to see things from the Lord's perspective and not from our own. Take, for example, the words of David, the psalmist in Psalm uh, 23, verse 4. A psalm that all of us are familiar with. We hear it a few times. We read it a number of times. We hear it at funerals most of the time. But it's this one statement in verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I think of the proverb, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14, verse 27. That one verse that says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. A little different than the fear of the world, the fear of the world toward death. Here it says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. But here's the reason to depart from the snares of death. We fear the Lord because he is our life. That fear is a fear of worship, a fear of respect and reverence toward God. And it is in that that he provides provides a fountain of life for us. He's still in control of our lives, isn't he? Each and every one of us, each and every one of us has a time. And we don't know that time. But we have to be understanding of that time. The psalmist in Psalm 31 says, my times are in his hands. We need to make sure that we understand that. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Jesus put on flesh for us, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. As long as we were apart from Jesus Christ, we had a fear of death. And whether we ever said that out loud loud or not, we had the fear of death. I've known a lot of guys, I don't fear nothing, you know, yeah. But inside of you, you fear death. Because you don't know what's on the other side of death. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are brought to a place where we can understand at least that were we to die, or if we are to die, we will be with our Lord and Savior. We will still be alive. These bodies will be what is going to be taken back to the earth. But who we are in Jesus Christ will be safe and alive and even more alive than we've ever been here on this earth. Deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, death is a bondage. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead set us free from death, 
from sin, from hell, and from the devil, and from the grave. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Jesus is actually speaking to the church of Smyrna, a suffering church, a church that suffered for the sake of Christ. And he said, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. We have nothing to fear if Jesus Christ is our Lord, if he is our Savior, if he is our God, if he is our Redeemer. You know, the subject of this, of this present verse of Scripture, verse 17 of chapter 1, can be noted as being saved and delivered through a dreadful crisis. Being saved and delivered through a dreadful crisis. A crisis not brought about by God himself, but by a man's anger and hatred. of a pagan people. And don't forget that Jonah was fleeing the Lord's call on his life, booking passage on a ship bound for Tarshish, which is in Spain, and while he was determined to get away as far as he could from his God, the Lord was even more determined to keep his dear prophet from throwing his life away. How often... Does God do things in our life to keep us from throwing our life away? Each and every one of us in this room has something that we look back at and say, right there, I could have thrown my life away. But God saved me at that very moment. Have you ever considered that our God will do whatever it takes to lead his rebellious children to repentance and submission to the call that he's given us? Well, for Jonah, he caused a great storm to arise, one so violent and turbulent that the the ship he was actually on was was literally breaking up, and and with it, uh, there were others there. He was going to take them down with him. Jonah knew the storm was caused by the hand of God to discipline him. He also knew that he deserved death because he refused to go preach to the multitude uh, uh, or the multiplied thousands of souls in the pagan land of Nineveh. And because by refusing to accept the Lord's call, he was dooming thousands uh, to death and separation from the Lord. He was dooming them. So if I don't go, well, you know, yeah, God could pick somebody else. But if I don't go, you know, know, they'll be judged and that's what I want. How easy it is sometimes in our flesh to want to bring judgment on a lot of people. Without realizing God's love for the world. Let's not forget John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the first coming of the Lord. That's why he came. That's what we are to be preaching today. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the good news that was preached for us to be saved. Why should it be any different for others? We rejoice when we hear of people in lands such as Iran today, where believers are, 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 well, where, where many of them who are probably Muslim are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and doing so by the thousands. Or the many in, in, in lands such as in, in Africa where there's, there's a tremendous uh, Islamic uh, push 
in the Sudan and in other areas and other places. But yet others, uh, many others are coming to the Lord. It's what we are to be praying for. Now what Jonah might not have been expecting is that the Lord would save his prophet's life and restore his ministry. Throw me overboard. That's what I deserve. But that was exactly what God wanted them to do. Throw him into the sea. The sea that God created. Where a big, big fish that God created would come to a very specific place by God's leading to pick up his ride. That's called an uber whale. And he came. God provided and God appointed his creation. Now the Lord had prepared. Notice the word prepared. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now don't lose sight of those words. Three days and three nights. The word translated prepared is the word in the Hebrew manah. It literally means appointed, provided, or assigned. So this fish was not especially created for the occasion, but assigned. He was already in the water. And he was assigned to this very place. Now, in in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, we are told by Jesus that a whale swallowed Jonah. But the Greek word translated whale, which is the word ketos, can refer to any large sea monster. But the interesting thing is that the word setakeor or setaseor, another Latin word using this a particular Greek word, ketos, and it's related to ketos, signifies the mammalian order of fish. In other words, it would be a mammal. And we all should know from elementary science that whales are mammals. So there's no question that when Jesus said, a whale. He was right. And of course he's right. He's Jesus. He's the Lord. And you would think, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You've set the record straight for us. But is it straight for everybody else? No. This is one of the most controversial verses of Scripture anywhere. Both the one in Jonah and the one in Matthew. I mean, let's, let's turn to Matthew 12. And we're going to come, we'll, we'll be here for just a couple of minutes. But Matthew 12, verse 40, again, it says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, the ketos belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, let me just say real quickly, and I'll come back to this, but this is an exact prophecy using exact words. I'll explain in just a minute. But if I may say, ignorant people have said that a whale could not swallow a man. They have said this, it seems like, from time immemorial. They say that whale, a whale could not swallow a man, but I want you to consider something. Consider, if you will, that a giant sperm whale that has been exhibited, by the way, in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., and that was captured off Knights Key, Florida, in 1912. 
would beg to differ with them. This particular whale, which measured 45 feet long, has a mouth 38 inches wide and weighed 30,000 pounds. That's the whale itself. When they opened him up, they found a fish inside of this whale that weighed about 2,500 pounds. A fish. I would say that a man would probably fit through that 38-inch mouth. Unless you're big and tall, and then, you know, we would have a little problem getting through that 38 inches. They've actually found whales with bigger openings. There have been accounts validated of men being swallowed alive by whales and surviving the ordeal. For instance, in February of 1891, the crew of the whaling ship Star of the East sighted a large sperm whale off the Falkland Islands. They harpooned the whale, and in its wrestling with death, it happened to swallow a member of the crew named James Bartley. A day and a half later, Bartley's shipmates, who had thought he had drowned, found him unconscious in the whale's belly. And Bartley lived to tell about it, and the story was published in many newspapers. His description of the experience was rather traumatic, I guess. This is what he said. He said, you know, I could breathe easily, but the heat inside of that whale was unbearable. And his whole appearance, uh, Bartley's appearance, was changed by the ordeal. Permanently changed by his ordeal. His neck, his face, his hands were permanently bleached to a bluish-gray whiteness. And that's the way he had to be for the rest of his life. Because he had been bleached by the gastric juices of this whale. That was just in a day and a half. But the question continues to be asked. How is it possible for a person to survive being swallowed by a fish and to live inside its stomach for three days and three nights? Well, I'm here to give you that answer. Are you ready? The answer is this. By the power of Almighty God, the creator of the heavens and of the earth, by the power of our Lord, the same God who created the heavens and earth as well as the very beast that swallowed Jonah. That's how a person can survive inside of a whale for three days and three nights. But there's something more that we're going to touch upon here toward the end of our study. We'll come back to that for just a moment. Because only the power of God himself could cause such a miraculous deliverance. Only by the power of God himself. There really is no other explanation. Now what does that bring to us? That brings to us the opportunity to trust the Lord. We are people of faith. We trust God's word. We trust what God has done. We truly believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days because that's what the text tells us in Genesis chapter 1. Nothing on earth, not a human being or any other force could work such a miracle. We have a God who is the God of the impossible. He is supernatural. Supernatural is really important here because we live in a natural world. And this natural world is naturally falling apart. And the falling apart of this natural world began back after creation, after the fall of man. 
As soon as Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes, yes, were open. They were ashamed because they considered, they saw themselves and they were naked. God said, who told you you were naked? The Lord had to, and he knew this all along, but he was going to implement then the plan. The plan of redemption, the plan of salvation. But the fact of the matter is, as soon as they died, the creation began to die as well. And that is when the second law of thermodynamics kicked in. The fact that everything that is created and that is existing is wearing away. Had that never happened in the garden, it would be a totally different story. Everything was perfect. But once imperfection was introduced, then everything began to fall apart. So what we need to come to grips with is that this miracle, acts which are beyond the natural world, that's supernatural, above the natural, has truly brought about a tremendous amount of unbelief. Even in the church today, the secular humanistic naturalist doubts anything that may even be suggested as a miracle simply because it is beyond the natural scheme of things. And so they are proud to be doubters. But the issue is not between the doubter and the ancient biblical record. The issue is not between the doubter and the Bible. It is between the doubter and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Matthew 12, if you're still there. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, which is Jonah. And then he says what he says in verse 40, as we already read. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. Stop there and look at that phrase again. Two words that you need to look at. Was and in. Was and in. For as Jonas was three days and three nights. Where? In the whale's belly. Jesus is making this really clear. He's making it so that they they don't have any room to disbelieve what he's saying. They should know this. This was part of their scripture. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there's no question as to what Jesus is saying here. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. There's a term that is found in Paul's first letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. That is fittingly appropriate in this setting. What we're doing here tonight. Turn to 1 Timothy 6 verse 20. It says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings. And oppositions, and look at this, and oppositions of science falsely so called. In in effect, what he's saying is this is false science. It's false knowledge from the standpoint of those who are opposing the things of the word of God. Because notice, if you just read it in context, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of gnosis or gnosis. Remember what that word, that word is a root of? Gnosticism. And he calls it falsely so-called as a science. Pseudonymous. Gnosis pseudonymous. 
false science. Now, folks, is there a real science? Of course there's real science. Real science is used in our lives every day, whether we consider it science or not. From the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you go to the bed, you know, science is, true science is working. True mathematics is working. True mathematics is a science. Done right. But notice the next verse, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Ah, so they're beginning to listen to the Gnostics or the Gnosis people, the ones who say they've got knowledge when they don't have evidence. But we have evidence of what Jonah went through because of the letter or of the book that Jesus said really happened. Now, science, when they tell you that the world has existed for billions of years, they call that science. But that science is falsely so-called because They don't have empirical evidence, observable evidence. Oh, they've kind of looked at things uh, from a standpoint of carbon dating and and, and whatnot, but even that is not a specific science, or as good a, a science as it could be. We have the word of God that we have to trust in. And what God gives us, we can trust because it's a lot easier, you know, to believe what God has done than what man is, is claiming is, is, is the reality outside of any kind of a God. So what this verse is telling us here in First in Timothy 6 is that even in Paul's time, he was wrestling with, with the scientific scoffers who were more prone to believe the natural than in the power of Almighty God. And these kind of scoffers fail to take into account any biblical accounts of a fallen human race and of an earth that is, in fact, under a curse. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. We go back to verses 17 through 19, where it says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, pointing to Adam, I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field and the sweat of thy face. Shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken. For dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. And that's been happening ever since they ate of that fruit. And so these Pseudo-scientists are not tolerant of any miracle whatsoever. And what is missed by the scientific scoffer, whether it be because there's no empirical evidence, logical evidence, or even anecdotal evidence, because those are all kinds of evidence that could be used, possibly. But what is missed by the scientific scoffer is the miracle of God's undeserved favor and love upon a morally bankrupt and disordered universe. Paul, when he says in Romans 8, verses 19 to 23, for the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. If it did in Paul's time, it's doing that more now. I mean, the earth is groaning. Every kind of natural thing or natural disaster or natural kind of event that could happen has magnified, multiplied exponentially since the days of Paul. 
For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. If that was the way it was then in Paul's time, how much more today? Knowing that the Lord Jesus can come at any moment and we're groaning, Lord God, come quickly, come quickly. This world is destroying itself. Man who has taken their eyes and their minds and their hearts away from God are destroying this planet. But lest we forget, let's understand this. We are people of faith. And we can understand when we don't understand science. We can understand God. And we can understand that he's the one that holds all all things in his power. That he's the one that can move mountains. Yes, I know that many times people say, well, you know, God gave us, we can do that. We can move mountains. You can't move mountains without him. You cannot move mountains without God. Son, I don't want to move nothing without God. I don't even want to move myself unless God tells me we need to move. And he does every day. Praise the Lord for that. You know. Get out of bed. Okay, okay yes, Lord. Start reading. Okay. Pray. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, you get a little older, you need a little help from the Lord sometimes. Get going. But lest we forget, listen to Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith, trust, belief, and dependency upon God. That's the substance of things hoped for. The world doesn't understand that. We need to understand that. Go down a few verses to verse 6 and it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. It is impossible to please God without faith. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. But sadly, the debate continues in the scientific world, not to mention in the halls of modern day seminaries where Jonah is discussed at length. And that both the possibility of and the impossibility of the prophet's account. Is it true? Is it not true? Is it possible? Is it not possible? But whatever position a person takes, one truth stands out above all others. Since the Lord God truly exists and actively controls the universe, he is certainly capable of doing anything that he wishes. God is capable of doing whatever he wishes. He could have enabled Jonah. Listen, he could have enabled Jonah to walk above and across the storm-tossed sea. Somewhat like Jesus and Peter did on the Sea of Galilee. Look at Matthew 14, verses 25 to 31. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. He was walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway, which means immediately, Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. They probably got doubly afraid after that. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me to come un- bid me come unto thee on the water. If it's you, tell me and I'll come. And he said, come. Now, this, this is where you have to wonder, did Peter really mean what he said? wasn't expecting that from Jesus. No. He really said, listen, if you want me to, I'll come. If it's you, I'll come. That's what he was saying. If it is you, if it's you, Jesus, you tell me to come, I'll come. Jesus said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Anybody else follow him? Not one of the disciples except Peter himself alone walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, now see, now he puts his eyes on the wind and he puts his eyes on the sea and he puts his eyes on the boisterous sea and he, and he became afraid, took his eyes off of Jesus. 
Beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Why did you doubt? How many people? And this is a sad commentary, folks. I hate saying it because I've known people that have done this. They were on fire for Jesus Christ. I mean, they were on fire for the Lord. And they were on fire to tell people about the Lord. And then they said, you know what, I feel, like, I feel like I need to go to seminary. I want to learn more. And they go to seminary, and they go for four years, and they get some, something called an MDiv. That's just a ministry of divinity. Divinity. That's, more, that's not like a dessert. But this ministry of divinity, or ministry of the, or masters of divinity, whatever, they come out, and now all of a sudden they come down, and they say, oh, man, how was it? Well, now I learned this and this and this and this. Well, let's, let's go tell people about the Lord. Well, you know, uh, you go ahead. I, I kind of reserve my ideas and thoughts about how we are really to approach people and blah, blah, blah. What happened to the fire? It's like you go to seminary and they got a big bucket of water and they say, you got a fire for the Lord? Okay, now we're going to teach you something else. Not all seminaries are that way, but a lot of them are today. And I would rather you stay in God's word, you stay on your knees, and you stay praying and serving the Lord and learn from him because he's going to teach you everything you need to know about life and godliness. We're too close to the coming of the Lord to be messing around with things like that. Unless God truly calls you, just serve the Lord. See, this wasn't the way the Lord chose to deliver his prophet from death. To walk on the water. You're going to say, hey, Jonah, let's go. We're going to walk over to Nineveh. I'm going to take you myself. No, it didn't happen that way. Instead, God chose to deliver Jonah by having a huge fish of the mammalian kind to swallow him. But more than trying to prove the miracle, it is essential that we focus on why God delivered Jonah in this manner. Why? First of all, the Lord used the huge fish or the whale to keep Jonah intact while at the same time giving the prophet a sense of being in Hades, hell. In the very pit of death and hell itself. Go over to chapter 2 for just a moment. Go to verse 2. This is Jonah's prayer. We're going to study this prayer next week. Jonah said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. God wanted him to taste what hell was like. Look at verse 6 now. Just go down a couple more verses. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. It's just descriptive language in the Hebrew of going down to the depths. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Now, by the way, there's, there's, there's a debate that centers around whether or not Jonah died while he was either in the belly of the whale or died before being swallowed up by the great fish. Big debate about that. Well, it's something to consider. But Jesus did refer to Jonah's ordeal as a type of his death, burial, and resurrection. Go back to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What do we know about Jesus in, in the tomb for three days and three nights? What do we know? He was dead. He had to die. He died. His body was dead. Now we know that during that time also he went into 
Hades itself. But he was dead. So in this verse, as I said earlier, the parallel is exact. For a man who was miraculously kept alive for three days and three nights does not seem to be an exact parallel of the Lord who was dead and buried for three days and three nights. So it is quite likely. And again, it's possible or debatable as it were. But it is quite likely that Jonah died in the waters of the tempestuous storm. He may have drowned. And then was swallowed up by this prepared and and appointed fish. And in the early part of the fourth day. Because remember now, when Jesus rose from the dead. What did the apostles find when they looked into the tomb? First of all, he wasn't there. But his grave clothes were nicely folded. Something to think about. And on the early part of that fourth day, the day when he would be alive, Jonah uttered his prayer before being spewed out by the whale onto dry land. And of course, we'll deal with this prayer next time. But let me interject here with this thought. It may have been a most merciful thing for the Lord to do for Jonah, for him to take him dead into the belly of the fish. For to have been dead three days and three nights in the whale would have kept him from having to deal with the darkness and the unbearable smell of rotting and decaying fish and seaweed and other creatures which would have been broken down and dissolved by the whale's gastric juices. Just saying. You might want to ask James Bartley about that. There's a second reason why God sent this whale for Jonah. While giving the prophet a sense of being in Hades, which we talked about, that was, and listen carefully, that was to remind him spiritually of the place that he was dooming over 120,000 souls from Nineveh. It was to remind him of where those souls would end up. Thirdly, the Lord used that fish to deliver Jonah from death in order to demonstrate his amazing love and his mercy. God was teaching Jonah about the depth of his love, not just for him, but for the Ninevites as well. And lastly, The Lord used the fish to swallow and later expel Jonah as a type of Christ's death and resurrection. With that in mind, we want to close on a couple of passages of Scripture. First of all, Mark 8, 31. These are the words of Jesus. It says in verse 31 of Mark 8, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then lastly, John 3, verses 14 through 17. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And as Moses, I should say, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 
that whosoever believeth in, him, believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We must remember that in this account of Jonah, as much as Jonah hated the Ninevites, God loved them and sent Jonah to give them the message to repent. But first now he has to deal with his prophet. As we'll see in Jonah's prayer next time, you can have an awakening experience in in the belly of a whale. But will it keep? Will it keep? Come next time to find out.